Well, a confrontation was inevitable. Uh, the conflict had been brewing for a very long time. And Paul, for one, knew that it was coming. He was on his way to visit the church in Jerusalem and to bring them a gift, a very substantial sum of money raised by the churches of Greece and Macedonia and Asia. And this aid was needed in Jerusalem because there had been a famine in Palestine. The confrontation that seemed inevitable was not between uh, Paul and the, the church in Jerusalem, but rather between Paul and the Jewish religious establishment, which had its headquarters in Jerusalem. On his way to Jerusalem uh, from Greece, Paul uh, wrote his epistle to the Romans as, as his, his last will and testament, just in case he died and didn't get a chance to write it down. Uh, and on the way, he stopped to farewell the eldership of the church in Ephesus, saying, and now, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. As Paul was closing in on Jerusalem, passing through the city of Tyre on the Mediterranean coast, uh, the disciples, uh, we read, urged Paul through the Holy Spirit not to continue his journey. And on reaching the town of, uh, of um, uh, um, Caesarea, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea and coming up to Paul and taking his belt from him, he tied his own hands and feet with it and said, the Holy Spirit says in this way the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. Luke, our eyewitness reporter and uh, uh, narrator, our author, he writes, when we heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, Why are you weeping and breaking my heart? Am I ready not only to be bound but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, uh, today uh, we, we read and we heard uh, about the fulfillment of Agabus's prophecy because the confrontation was inevitable. Um, the nature of the comp confrontation w was, was this. On the one hand, the Jewish religious establishment, they believed that God had saved his people. Salvation was in the past. It was in history. Uh, God had saved his people from Egypt by the hand of Moses. People, God's people, saved by grace from slavery to Gentiles, that is, non-Jews. And it was Moses who gave them the law and the tabernacle. The tabernacle eventually evolved into the temple, the temple in Jerusalem. They taught and believed that you were justified, that is to say, you were right with God when you obeyed Moses and worshipped in the temple. Thus you were justified. You were right with God if you were born Jewish, circumcised on the eighth day, if you were male, stuck fast 
to the food laws, observed the Sabbath and kept the feasts, participating in the sacrificial liturgy of the temple in Jerusalem. For such things as these, they and their forebears had died and been killed. Withstood persecution, centuries of it. Persecuted as a religious and ethnic minority. Persecuted by Gentiles. That is by non-Jews. And specifically by the Egyptians, Amalekites, Moabites, Philistines, Syrians, Assyrians, Babylonians, Greeks, and now in their day by the Romans. But Paul, the Jew, he'd been preaching a different message, a different gospel. He understands that now Jesus of Nazareth, proven to be the Jewish Messiah, in power by the Holy Spirit, he had changed all of this. Not because it was wrong, but rather because the job of all that stuff, Moses, the law, the temple, etc., the job of all of that stuff was to point to him, Jesus, the Messiah. By grace, God's people are saved from slavery, but from slavery to sin. Saved by Christ's death on the cross and resurrection on the third day. Brought back from the slavery that is not knowing God to the freedom that is knowing God. Fellowship with God through Jesus his son by his work for us on the cross. And people are justified, that is to say you are right with God, simply and completely, when you put your faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Well, Paul has been preaching uh, this message to both the Jews and Gentiles, that is to say this gospel which Paul preaches is a message for both Jews and Gentiles. Suggesting, suggesting that Jews and Gentiles are equally lost without Jesus. And perhaps even more scandalously, that Jews and Gentiles are equally found when they simply put their faith in Jesus Christ, whether or not they do the Jewish things, circumcision, Sabbath observance, cleansing rituals in the temple. Well, the Jewish religious establishment in Jerusalem, they hear about, they know about Paul's message through the whole Mediterranean world. And they hear it not only as a hideous blasphemy against God, but as a message that will destroy Judaism. As Paul teaches that their cultural identity markers, circumcision, Sabbath observance, temple participation, they're not essential. They perceive Paul as anti-Jewish. The the church in Jerusalem, feeling keenly the tension, suggests to Paul that he do something intentionally to show that he's not anti-Jewish. Their suggestion is this. Join with some others here in participating in the Jewish purification rituals in the temple. When the people see this, they'll see that Paul is himself living in obedience to the law. That not only is he not anti-Jewish, but rather he'll be seen to be still an observant Jew. And Paul is happy to do that. Paul is happy to pray in the temple. He's happy indeed to submit to Jewish purification rites 
in keeping with the law of Moses. Paul knows that he's not in bondage to such things. But as as F.F. Bruce puts it, a truly emancipated spirit such as Paul's is not in bondage to its own emancipation. In other words, a truly free person is not held captive by their own freedom. Paul is he knows he's, he's free, but he's happy to forego his freedoms. Or to use Paul's own, word, own words, to those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. Although Paul is teaching that these things are not essential, you're not justified by them, you're justified by Jesus. These things are not essential. He's not teaching that these things are wrong. The purpose of such things, though, is not to justify us before God, but rather to point us to Jesus, the one who justifies us before God. So that's, that's the plan, and that's what Paul does. And the plan fails spectacularly. Paul is in the temple when the long-foreseen confrontation erupts. And we we read, we heard about how that confrontation unfolded. In thinking now about that confrontation, I would like us to compare and contrast the content and manner of both sides. What was said and what was done by both sides in the confrontation. Well... The riot begins with some Jews from the Roman province of Asia, that is to say from the western part of modern-day Turkey, uh, an area that included the ancient city of Ephesus. These guys are from Ephesus. They know uh, Trophimus, the Ephesian, at least by face, as well as, of course, they know Paul. Um, And this is the content of their argument. We find their grievance with Paul in verse 28. This is the man who teaches everyone, everywhere, against our people and our law and this place. And besides, he has brought Greeks into the temple and defiled this holy place. Well, the second accusation, as as Luke points out, it's just an assumption based upon seeing Paul and Trophimus together in the city and assuming that with Paul now being in the temple complex, Trophimus must still be with him. The, the, the temple complex had an outer courtyard and an inner courtyard. Paul's business took him into the inner courtyard, the, the courtyard of the court of Israel. Now, anyone could enter the outer courtyard, sometimes called the court of the Gentiles. But a notice stood on the barrier separating the two courts, saying in both Greek and Latin, no foreigner may enter within the barricade which surrounds the temple and its enclosure. Anyone who is caught trespassing will bear personal responsibility for his ensuing death. So this second accusation about bringing Gentiles into the court of Israel is a serious accusation, but it's false. In fact, it's just an assumption. And indeed, to accuse someone of a serious crime on the basis simply of an assumption, is as evil as it is stupid. As we can see now for ourselves, the first accusation, this this is the man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people and against our law and against this place. This is a deliberately ambiguous generalization of a complex truth. 
there, there is indeed some truth in it, but it is now presented in a way to the crowd that makes it dangerously simplistic slander. This is a statement that is calculated to precipitate Paul's speedy death. Well, we've looked at the content of their grievance against Paul. What was their manner? In what way did they behave? Well, they go berserk. The ensuing riot reminds us of how incredibly dangerous it is when you challenge the corporate identity markers of a group of people. This is especially dangerous when the group concerned considers themselves to be an endangered minority with a long history of persecution. And they did consider themselves to be an endangered, persecuted minority with a long history of being persecuted by the Gentiles. So, so what do we actually see in their behavior? Well, in a flash, peace and order disappear, and we see the sudden appearance of noise, shouting, shouting down, uproar, physical violence, force, aggression, insults, condemnation. What disappears? That's appeared. What disappears? Well, actually, what disappears is freedom of speech, opportunity for rational debate, any idea that someone might be, pro- might be innocent until proven guilty? Any thought of allowing the accused to defend themselves? And any opportunity for clemency, compassion, or mercy? Now, some of you might be thinking, Stephen's being anachronistic. Those ideas spring from modern, liberal, Western democracies. They're not ancient ideas. No, 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 no. No, they're ancient ideas. Um, Both Jews and Romans understood that an accused person must be allowed to defend himself and to have a defense. That the law of Moses demanded the highest standards when it came to justice. The law of Moses demanded at least two or three witnesses for any accusation to be considered. Accusations had to be rational and to be able to withstand critical examination. Judges were to be absolutely impartial without corruption or bribery. Punishments were to fit the crime, and people could plead for mercy and clemency. Uh, Likewise, the presumption of innocence is an ancient idea. I incumbent probatio qui dissit non qui negat. The burden of proof is on the one who declares, not on the one who denies. And in Jewish tradition, if you believed that your life was in danger from false accusation, you could run to the temple and take hold of the horns of the altar. And this was a a way of saying, I call God as my witness that I'm not guilty. That that didn't guarantee a pardon or vindication, but it it was supposed to at least guarantee you a fair trial, a hearing, a defense. That's why Paul's Persecutors closed the door on the temple. The gates were immediately shut, verse 30, because the crowd considers that for Paul there can be no mercy, no trial, no compassion. They were beating him to death when the Roman soldiers arrive. So what we see here is that the people, they gave themselves over so totally to their anger that they immediately forgot all that was important about justice, even in their own culture. So let's summarize. 
Their accusations were actually slanderous oversimplifications and dangerous false assumptions designed to get somebody killed. That's their content. What was their manner? Filled with hatred and self-righteous indignation, they immediately become violent and throw away their own traditions of truth, mercy, and justice. Instead of a trial, we get a witch hunt, a persecution, a prosecution, with the ones doing the persecuting believing that they are justified in their persecution because they see themselves as a persecuted minority that must fight back in order to survive. Uh, Let's uh, now look at the content of Paul's defense and the manner of his conduct. Well, Paul's behavior is extraordinary. No doubt he's completely disheveled, clothes ripped, probably bruised, battered, and bleeding. He could have pleaded, and I think I would have pleaded with the Roman commander, I'm a Roman citizen! Get me out of here! But instead, he asks to speak to the crowd. He asks to speak to the crowd that is trying to kill him. Just in case it's not obvious, he's experiencing rejection here. He could have counter-accused. He could have denounced them for their hypocrisy, for departing so completely from the legal traditions Moses established for them. He could have rebuked them in the name of their God. Thank God he didn't. He also could have attempted to proclaim Jesus Christ from the perspective of their shared history as recorded in the Holy Scriptures. He could have tried to prove from the Scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. Now, Paul can do that, and he has done that, and there's a time and a place for doing that, but he doesn't do that here. And I think we can thank God for that too. Because instead of going to the Scriptures, Paul goes to his own personal experience. He shares his conversion story, a testimony a story we're already familiar with because we read it way back in chapter 9. Paul begins his testimony by carefully building bridges to his audience. He addresses them in the language that they have in common, probably Aramaic, possibly Hebrew, not the language of the marketplace, that was Greek, but the language of the home and probably more significantly, the language of the synagogue. He addresses them as brothers, fathers, He he rehearses uh, with them his Jewish credentials that they know full well and that they're not only impressive, but they're, they're better than most of his persecutors. Raised in Jerusalem, a student of the world famous Rabbi Gamaliel, a zealous persecutor of Christians, a member of the inner circle of high priest and Sanhedrin. And twice he emphasizes that he used to share with them a a hatred of this new religious sect, the people of the way, the disciples of Jesus. He, He knows where they're coming from. He used to share their point of view completely. But then we get to the substance of his testimony, how he met Jesus personally, how he came to understand that Jesus of Nazareth is Lord. Paul continues his testimony by outlining his response to this revelation. Immediately he was baptized. Then he begins the work that God has assigned for him to do, to be his witness 
calling on his name. Paul is careful not to denounce or criticize Judaism. Paul, the Christian, is still a Jew. So is Ananias, Christ's ambassador to Paul, who is also a devout observer of the law. Jesus of Nazareth is, of course, first and foremost, Messiah to the Jews. His interest is not in destroying Jewish cultural identity markers so that he can introduce new cultural identity markers, but rather that he can introduce a person, Jesus of Nazareth, who is Messiah and Lord. And they listen carefully and silently to all of this. And many in his audience, after all, would remember Jesus for themselves, his teachings, the miracles, the healings, the crucifixion, which, which was only 27 years earlier. And they continue to listen silently. Through verses 17 to 21, Paul is describing his return to Jerusalem immediately after his conversion, which we read about back in chapter 9, verses 26 to 30. And I guess that what Paul is probably doing, he's probably on his way to explaining to this hostile crowd how it is that he ended up ministering to Gentiles rather than to Jews. But he never gets to make his point. He only gets as far as, Then the Lord said to me, Go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And at this point, the crowd goes ballistic. Why at this point? Well, because, because actually Paul is telling them that God loves Gentiles too. And that is one step too far. So let's summarize Paul's content and manner. Paul keeps his head, remains calm, builds bridges, sympathizes and empathizes. He doesn't attack back or counter-accuse, even though he could have. He acts lovingly. He is loving his enemies, those who have rejected him. His desire is that some of them too may come to faith in Christ. So he acts lovingly and he testifies, testifying to his own personal experience of Jesus. Um, why is it important that we see these things? Well, um, I've got three reasons why this is important. And here's the first. Luke, you see, is writing at a time of intense Jewish persecution of the Christian church. With the dawn of the intense Roman persecution of the Christian church just on the horizon for his original readers. In our lifetimes... We've lived through seasons of intense communist persecution of the Christian church and intense Islamic persecution of the Christian church. Many Christians sense that we are now currently at the dawn of a new age of persecution of Christians in the West, a persecution that is at the hands of a movement that kind of has many names, uh, fundamentalist secularism, political correctness, neocultural Marxism, but all of these movements, um, all of these movements I've just mentioned, um, ancient and contemporary, all of them are infected with the spirit of this age. And it is by this same spirit that the Jews of Jerusalem likewise acted 
on that day. Irrational, hate-filled, violent, bent on killing those who don't share their ideas, demonizing their opponents and dehumanizing them, bent on their destruction. This is the spirit of the age we live in. It, it should not surprise us when we might see people behaving like this, either online or in the media or in the letters column of the West Australian or in our faces. We should expect this. It is the spirit of this age. What is unexpected, what is insupportable, is when Christians behave in this way. And we do, at least from time to time, both corporately and individually. This is my first point. Just because we are a persecuted minority, that does not give us the right to behave like a persecuted minority. Jesus is Lord, and he is very good at taking his enemies gently in hand. We, like Paul are to move in the opposing spirit. That's my first point. Secondly, please understand the power of personal testimony. The power of a testimony is that, that you're not saying to your audience, you've got the wrong idea, I've got the true idea. You're not saying, you've got wrong cultural identity markers, I've got superior cultural identity markers. No, no, rather, in a personal testimony, you say, I've met Jesus, and you can meet him too. And that's the brilliance of Paul's testimony. You can't argue with his own personal experience. Some testimonies are not as dramatic as Paul's. And some testimonies actually are a whole heap more dramatic than Paul's. But all testimonies are equally powerful when they are a true and faithful record of how Christ has broken into our lives and saved us from ourselves. To be sure, a testimony doesn't answer every objection or answer every question. Paul, on the day that he met Jesus, he obviously didn't get any of his questions answered about the Christian, any of his objections met about the Christian faith. In what way, Lord, is persecuting your followers persecuting you? Um, if you are the Messiah, Lord, why did you die a cursed death on a cross? If you are the Son of God, how can you be fully human and fully God at the same time? And if you are fully divine, and so is the Father and, and the Spirit, how can there be only one God, not three? None of those questions were answered for Paul on the day of his conversion. Just, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Um, when I get into debate with atheists, uh, which actually is an extremely rare event, but it does occasionally happen. When I get into debate with atheists, they seem to want to talk to me about ideas. It seems that their point is always this. Their idea is superior to my idea, which they think is a stupid idea. Actually, the truth is, I have no idea. I have a person. 
I have a personal relationship with someone whom I can trust. And that's because he's God. And they can have that relationship too. It's not going to answer all their questions, but at least they can know that it is true. Because you know that someone is alive when you've met them. So, so here's my second point. Never underestimate the power of your testimony. Whatever it is, just make sure that it's a clear, faithful, and true account of how God has broken into your life to introduce you to Jesus, saving you from yourself. Keep your head, stay calm, love those who are rejecting you, don't counter-accuse, and testify to what you have seen and heard. And this is, therefore, is my third and last point. Do you have a testimony? Have you met Jesus? Has Jesus called you by name in order that you too might be baptized and live calling on his name, doing the good works prepared in advance for you to do? If not, why not? There is no other basis by which a Christian can be a Christian except by way of a personal relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ, his Son. If, if you haven't met Jesus and you'd like a personal introduction, come forward at the conclusion of this service and we'll arrange that for you. Now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.